Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they are eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, a podcast where we talk about how esports can create jobs anywhere in the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. In season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about money. We call it follow the money. And now in season three, we're talking about how to build a business. We call it Esports 101. Today, I'm really happy to have Grant Rousseau, who is the, he has like, like the longest title out there. So he's, he's the global director of esports and European director of operations for Team Falcons. Welcome, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No, this, this is going to be a good discussion, I think. Uh, what, what I thought maybe we'll talk about, we'll do a bit of an introduction. Then I wanted to talk about team operations, um, because that's, that's your strength. And that's something that our audience, um, whether they know it or not, need to know more about. And then also want to talk a little bit about the impact of culture on esports, because I know that you've been working with some international teams, uh, out there. And it's always interesting for international audience to, to understand how other people are dealing with, uh, with culture. So first introduction, what, what brought you to esports and gaming? I look back on it. So it's the competitive side for me. That's ultimately what took me in. I uh, I loved sports as a kid, but I was absolutely atrocious at pretty much all sports I played. So I kind of accept that me being a professional footballer, soccer player was not going to happen. Um, and as I went to university and did engineering, my friends introduced me to um, some esports. Basically, there, there was a particular team they watched, a team called Fnatic. In this game, League of Legends, they showed it to me. I was a gamer. I wasn't anything over the top. I wasn't trying to be a pro gamer. I just play games with friends. And as soon as I saw it, it completely hooked me. So that competitive element really hooked me, not necessarily the game. And I just kind of went, I think this is what I want to do. It was just one of those moments where something clicked. I just went, yeah, I think esports is my thing, actually. I've been looking for my passion. And here we are seven, years, seven eight years later. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's always great to hear people's how they got started because each one is a little bit different. And that's really interesting that it's the competitive aspect out there. What is team Falcons and what's your role there? Sure. So team Falcons is the biggest esports organization in the Middle East region. Um, organizations we know competing in games, uh, um, looking to bring in, you know, work with their facility, do events, that kind of thing. Um, so my role on the global scale, so I say global because they have expanded into Europe now, is to run the performance divisions for both the Middle East and the European side. So that's more performance structures, making sure players uh, have the capabilities to play at their best, that kind of thing, make sure we're winning trophies at the end of the day. Uh, and then specifically for Europe, I run the operations. So that is the operations of the company as a whole. It's not just performance. It can be anything from uh, and location facilities to communication systems, project management systems, the, the company as a whole, I guess, um, for Europe. So that's why it's a ridiculously long title because it is two separations. No, no, I was I, sorry. I just going to make you fun there. Um, so how, how do you, how did Team Falcon start out? Do you do you know the story there? 
Um, I, I admittedly, because I'm fairly, I mean, I've been with Falcons just short of a year now, and they've been going a, a few years. They're fairly new on paper, and I don't know too much about their background. Uh, what I do know is that uh, my boss and, and the guy running is a guy called Masad Aldasari. He is famous for being one of, and, and certainly if not, the best FIFA player in the world. He's won the FIFA Global World Championship, um, and he's very much, when it comes to esports, he's kind of the most successful name from the Middle East to come out of esports in recent times. So I know that he joined up with Falcons to effectively become the phase runner, etc. And he's kind of, like I said, he's running the 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 uh, uh, organization now. So there's a lot of birth in him being the influencer of esports of the region and it being built around him and his name. And I know they've done a lot of work on the content side to kind of build up a full content team. Um, so it kind of grew from that, is what I know. I don't necessarily know his origins. What I do know is Massad is very much the one who has just absolutely made it explode. And, and because he is such a global face, he's able to bring their uh, uh, ideas to Europe. And, and that's why we're expanding in this direction. Got it. Got it. Now, it's always interesting to hear that how things how things are how things uh, move. And I think it's interesting you're talking about he's, he was an influencer. He was he was a name. And then it kind of grew with yeah. him. Let's talk about um, team operations. Cool. How do you how do you start an esports team? So if you <laughs> if you're giving advice to someone that's out there and they're like, oh, I really want to be an esports and I think I want to create a team. What what advice would you give them on how to create a team? So I think it comes off the back of creating your plan from a performance perspective. So you're entering a game, you know you're going to need some players and team. At some point, you're going to have to think about contracts and positions, blah, blah, blah. But before any of that, what is your performance plan? What game are you entering? Why are you entering that game from a performance perspective? How are you going to win in this game? What players do you need? What kind of staff do you need? What is your performance plan? from the top down to be the best and to win. I think that's where you start. And once you have an idea of what you want to create from a performance perspective, then it's much more pure operations as you and me know it. It is going out, finding out, reaching for these players where appropriate, negotiating and trading, thinking about facilities, thinking about contracts and legal, thinking about uh, um, longevity of this team and the staff behind it. Um, there's a lot of different operational aspects. I think that's why it's really important to start with that core crux of what is your performance philosophy. No, I think I think that makes sense. What? How do you pick what games to be playing for your team? So, with an organization on a larger scale, that often comes down to the revenue opportunities associated with the game. So, we try to look at different aspects of viewership what kind of numbers are they pulling in terms of eyes and also what regions or what areas is specifically interested in that games uh, in those games because sometimes for example console games are very america heavy and uk heavy and some pc games do well in the middle east but they don't do well in western europe so you're trying to find out what cultures uh, uh, what regions are interested in certain games and how that could be appropriate to audience is is the main thing secondarily what these games can do in terms of attracting partnership opportunities is it a game that has guns in it for example that's always going to be harder to attract than a game that involves kicking some sort of ball around so thinking about what partnership opportunities are associated with it and then thirdly we also try and look at from a content perspective audience acquisition 
what can we do with our brand, our name and our team and our content creators even to create a splash in this game? And as a result, will that attract an audience to then obviously turn into revenue opportunities in terms of merchandise and subscriptions, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to have your revenue hat on. I think that's a mistake sometimes. You have to have your revenue hat on from the start. And from there, you can go on and try and win trophies and do really well. That's lovely. That will benefit you. But if you're not got a plan of how you're going to actually make money from day one, you're always going to struggle. So this big question is, how do you make money? What's, what's, what's your <laughs> revenue strategy to go out there? And I'm not uh, just in a, in a more general aspect. So if, if someone's looking for creating a revenue strategy, what, what are the considerations that they should make? So, so there's a few different aspects and areas that are more traditional, well-known at this point, more almost approach from sports. So I think obviously everyone, everyone talks about is partnerships, partnerships. If you get good partnerships across your games, on your jerseys, you know, on the players, et cetera, you can cover, you know, 60, 70% of your costs of a team, right? You're never, ever going to hit 100%. A lot of people focus on partnerships and say that is, you know, the core. It's important. It's not going to make you profitable. It's just going to help you get, you know, closer. From that point, I think the separation comes down to a lot of individual creativity. So what I mean by that is, unlike traditional sports, we don't have some sort of stadium to monetize. It's all online. So it becomes, how can you monetize your online audience? Traditional ones, merchandise is a very standard one. Uh, subscription systems of some kind, whether it's uh, you're producing extra online content in some way through your website, maybe you've got a way to have people subscribe for uh, uh, merch drops or subscribe for early access to content, for example, rather than perhaps your free methods like YouTube and, and, and Twitch and these other aspects. Outside that, as I say, then it really does come down to individual creativity. We've seen people take these sort of crypto NFT routes, which we could probably argue for days whether they've been successful or not. Some people go down uh, um, numerous routes around events. Events is a big one, of course. And how can you provide access to players in some form? Could there be some ways to, to provide costs or things associated with them? Even expanding on merchandise, how can we do different drops and make it rarer to make more money? Do we want to be more expansive? There's not many good ways to make revenue, to be honest, right now, outside partnerships. And it's the teams that are being successful are the ones who are trying to come up with new and unique ideas. For example, TSM out in America, Team Solar Mid, they, from a very late date, built a, well, they, via acquiring a very successful application that uh, uh, advises you on what uh, uh, builds and items to pick in, in a specific video game. Now, that's got nothing to do with esports it's kind of you can argue it's more gaming than esports and yet that's a massive revenue creator and they also have a bunch of websites that have guides on how to play this game to the best of your ability so they for example have become very creative and have created a lot of revenue that way so you really do have to come up with new unique ideas outside just shouting the word partnerships yeah. one of the things we talked when we talked to christian bishop from twitch last season and one of the things he was saying that um it kind of goes Along with what you're saying is you have to look beyond partnerships. You have to look beyond sponsorships. And his advice was to figure out ways to monetize the, the audience that you have. It's like, and to be, to be creative, just like you're describing there. Can you talk a little bit more about how do you get, how do you, how do you recruit sponsors? How do you recruit partners out there? What, what advice would you give for people who, I mean, everyone knows that they need sponsors, they need partners, but it's like, so how do you get them it, from the team aspect? So, endemic and non-endemic are your, obviously your two options. From an endemic perspective, you're going to be going after partners who do 
keyboards and PCs and, um, you know, anything gaming related, right? And with respect, these partnerships are not often the biggest, like computer companies, gaming focused computer companies and keyboard companies and monitor companies, they're doing well, but they're not nothing compared to the non-endemic branch your car companies or, or whoever it may be. So I think when you're approaching endemics, that's a good way to start off initially as a new team, because a lot of these endemics have partnership programs. So you don't necessarily have to go out and go, right, let's talk a six-figure number. In fact, they'll do partnership programs with you to get you off the ground. Uh, however, the big bucks comes in with the non-endemics. And effectively, you are approaching any company out there, and you are trying to show them how them having a connected gaming audience is very appropriate to their brand or what they want to create with their brand. And I think that's obviously the hardest conversation. What you find is once um, of a particular sector, one non-endemic moves in, they all move in. So we, we are covered with car sponsors at the moment. And that's a good thing, right? And what I think I suspect the first person managed to effectively say is, look, we have an audience of 14 to 22-year-olds roughly they're not going to be buying their first car until they're you know, 21, 22, maybe perhaps a touch younger. Point is, is, is it's going to be a very cheap, very small early car, right? But what they found and what they managed to say was, but if you partner with us and work with us, we are selling your brand. And what they find is a lot of people who go down, let's say, an Audi route, they love Audis, they will stay with that car for life. So the argument was, right, if you can connect with our gaming brand and get Audi, let's say, into our brand and show that you are the car manufacturer then, you might end up with some car buyers for life. So a really unique idea, right, and a really unique method of saying, how can we as a gaming brand work with you and your partnerships, but why would it matter to you? And it's because we can sell your brand for life. That's one idea uh, that has worked. And now all of a sudden, we, as I said, we're covered in car companies. <laughs> So you have to, again, it's a little bit of creativity, but ultimately we have the most, we being gaming and esports, have an extremely active community who are willing to invest in their organizations and put financial monetary value towards it and who connect to the brand in a way we don't see. It's different to a soccer fan, football fan looking at an advertising board. Like the people who follow esports are so close to the players in terms of accessibility that they really do connect with anything that that org or that player discusses as a brand so that that ability is what is attracting non-endemics of why we can come up with the opportunities it's a story that we keep hearing which is really good is that when we were talking to luca taconi at uh, red bull it's like the conversation needs to be what what can what can we do what can the team do for the brand not, not, not the other way around. The, the, the brand really isn't concerned about what great things you're going to do with their money. It's like what, what's, what's in it for them. So talking about players, how do you recruit players for your team? Okay, this is going to be a really long conversation. So I'll try and, I'll try and no, no, which, get which, to some people. Which is good because, which is, sorry to interrupt, which is really good because people are like, oh, I'm going to go out and get, get players. And then you start to think, okay, what's step one? Exactly. So let's go back to what I said about when you're starting team chat performance philosophy. So you've identified how you envisage and want to run your team, let's say from a performance perspective. You now need to break it down into the roles within the game. So I think using example here, let's assume it's a game of five players, right? That's the most common setup for most esports games. Each role within that game has a 
in-game specific mechanical role. You have your, your striker, your midfielder, your defender, your goalkeeper, right? Like that is a, a different talent for each role. So you've got that perspective to review, but also it starts to break down a lot more into communication roles. Who is your captain and how are they going to fit into communication role? Who is your star player? How is their personality going to fit into the team? And how will your support players work? How will they accept that they're going to take a lesser role within the team from a communication brand in-game talent point of view, but still support the team? So you've kind of got the communication system you think about and the personality system you think about. Um, me personally, I have studied and used the basketball philosophy a hell of a lot. It's something I've taken throughout my whole career because it's a five versus five game. And taking away the, as I say, those in-game roles from a personality and talent point of view, what I read through a few books and, and spoke to a few people about is you want one star player, you want two could-be superstar players, and you want two support players. And that creates a lovely balance of the super, the could-be superstar players are pushing the superstar player to remain at his best, and they're trying to become the next set of talent on the team. But you don't have five doing because when you have five doing the team becomes extremely imbalanced. People get greedy for sort of necessarily the resources in the game. You know, I want the ball, I want the ball. You can't have five people doing that. So you need these support players who are going to accept taking a lesser role but do what is needed for the team, perhaps sacrifice themselves, etc. Um, and then also from a communication point of view, as I said, you have kind of one captain or even sometimes a captain and a co-captain who are leading the voice, the communication, the morale of the team with three people willing to listen. So that's the way I've taken it. It's a very quick, very fast overview, but that's the depth you need to think about for how you're hiring for your team. And as soon as you have that, you now have a piece of paper of what kind of player you want in each role. And then it is a case of going out there um, and using whatever system you feel is appropriate to find these players. I, I, I go down two routes. I, I try to build softwares where I can within organizations that do the scouting for me. We, the benefit we have of esports versus traditional sports is all that data of how a player performs is in a game that you can download. So if we identify the 10 factors in the game of what we like from a talent point of view, great, we can just put it into a table and pick number one and number two, you know, and then you need to obviously match that with a really, really strong personality test slash interview process that ticks, as I just said, those boxes about the sort of communication systems and personality systems and growth systems, because you're not going to get that from numbers on screen. So there's a lot goes into it. That's how I try to balance it. Identify the team you want with each role and how and why and what you're looking for, and then go out there and use an in-data perspective and a interview process, combine those, and that's how you can find your players. That's hopefully a really quick version of kind of what I use. But as you can imagine, just like traditional sport, these are scouting systems and processes that can take one, two, three years to build. And, and I've had that length. Unfortunately, sometimes I've moved on from an organization just as I finish building the software we wanted to build for our scouting system, for example. So that that is the level we're now at in the esports. Now, it reminds me of the, of the movie Moneyball a few years ago. That is, which is, that which is which the route I personally up Everyone's like ideas to, to baseball. Yeah. It, it's, 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 I use almost like from a, from a um, out-of-game perspective, as I say, the communication systems, use basketball philosophy, but from an in-game perspective, I try to use that Moneyball baseball system because... I just think it's the best system. Use the data, collect the data. The data gives you the answers. You almost don't need to do the work, you know, because it's there in front of you telling you what are the best options. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very much with you there on, on that system. 
What, what about inspiration? How do you how do you keep the the players motivated? I mean, that, it would be true in traditional sport, but in esport, what, what kinds of how do you inspire them? Do you have any good stories of of uh, uh, particularly creative, inspirational um, uh, things that that the teams have done to uh, to, to keep their players motivated? Think uh, I'm trying to I'll try to think of a story in the background, but I know for me. A lot of the players you have coming through now understand what it takes to be a professional, let's say. So we're not dealing with players who are struggling with nutrition or or, or don't want to put in the hours, etc. We're getting people who understand to be the best, the work is required. So when it comes to sort of morale and inspiration and that side of things, you have a really good base to work with. But what you need to be careful of is actually ensuring your players don't burn out and actually over-practice and overwork and, and are so desperately the best that they effectively damage themselves. So I work very closely with sports psych, head of performance, because he does more than just sports psychology, but his strength is in sports psychology. And he does a lot of work with the players to grow them. Effectively, we say from sort of like teenagers to adults, which is a very harsh way of putting it because they, they are adults already. But in terms of how they approach feedback in their mentality, right? How they approach self-awareness and self-reflection, how they approach all these different ideas that make you a better person straight up um let alone a better player and i think once you start to build that ironically you don't necessarily do the inspiration because you've created a player or a person who is who's almost willing to always inspire themselves right if they're struggling in a match they can take a second breathe glass of water and go right let's reset myself bang ready to go again so i think that's the ideal world where a player can do it themselves obviously it's never that simple <laughs> and that's been plenty of times where a strong team talk is needed, um, whether it's the hair dry treatment or, or the kind words. I, I do know w- one story I have of kind of how we had a full turnaround. I remember is um, we were in a Rocket League tournament and we were a top four team, but had never won. Right. We were one of those teams and we were always on the edge, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. And it was getting a bit infuriating. And this tournament was coming up that we were playing at. We really thought, with the amount of work we put in, the amount of practice we put in, the amount of hours we put in, we thought this was the one. And I remember we were in the quarterfinals, and it was a best-of-seven game, and we were 3-0 down. So it was looking really bad, right? And we took a tactical pause. You're allowed to take one, and it's on YouTube. Effectively, our coach gave a very, very big speech about, not about how are you going to be better this match right now and how you're going to play better to turn this around, but instead addressing the players and kind of arguing to them do you want to win and be the best here how are you going to approach the next match to turn it around how can you be champions right now because this is a moment where champions are defined and champions are made if you win one match they're going to start panicking and start worrying and it's going to be on you to take full momentum this is on you as players right now to decide do you want to be a champion or not and we ended up reverse sweeping and winning 4-3 and we went on to win the tournament and I think that moment was so it was such a great moment because i knew if we won one match with that speech we would win 4-3 like if we could get to 1-3 we'd win 4-3 and it was just a real moment of kind of waking the players up from almost this whole year of practice and going you're always losing at the final moments you're always falling away at the final moments how right now are you going to decide that you want to be a champion and in that next match the communication was on a level you've never seen the energy was on a level you've never seen they score a goal and they'd be all, you know, patting each other on the back and, and screaming and shouting, yeah, let's go, like we've never seen. So 
I said, in an ideal world, the player will do it themselves because you've created that almost perfect player. But in a realistic world, you need those voices that can create that inspiration, create them around. No different to a coach in any traditional sport. And it is a genuine talent to be able to do that because you can't do it every week. It doesn't work. What team was this? It was it was it was the Guild Esports, which was a, a UK esports team owned by David Beckham, and it was our Rocket League team. I remember it was a, I had to give it, it was Spring Regional Three, twenty twenty two. It was it was just that moment of like we I said we've been third or fourth every time. We were three 0 down the quarterfinals, and I'm sitting there going, "Here we go again." You know, it's happening again. And then just that turnaround happened and we just flew through and ended up winning the tournament and the players were just on another level after one, she can imagine. So, um, yeah, there is a YouTube video if you type that in and you can find the speech. No, no, I'll, Someone I'll go I really, I really like the story of when Anubis from Egypt went to uh, the Red Bull Campus Clutch. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were down, they were down the same way they were down and everyone's just like, oh, they're writing them off. And it's like, boom, they came back and I it's, it's just a, 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 an amazing story. You're talking about training, so oh, not overtraining. What does a good training schedule look like? So for me, again, I think it's different person to person what they want. Your day's broken down to a few areas. It's broken down into team practice where you're just doing practice matches. It's broken down into individual practice where you're obviously going online in your game and just individual practicing. And then it's the out-of-game practice. So you're eating, your gym your sleep, whatever it may be, those those aspects to life that make a better player. I think in-game practice, uh, sorry, team practice, you're looking at around four to five hours a day. It's kind of what we do with most of our teams. We then expect individual practice to be similar matching, probably not that much, maybe around the three to four hours mile. So you're looking at about a eight to nine hour day, no different to a traditional working day, to be honest. So very close to working day. And obviously outside that, and then at that point, managing your own schedule. So I'm not putting hours on it, but go to the gym. You're eating your three meals a day. You're getting eight hours of sleep or, or you know, whatever is appropriate to your sleep, but roughly eight hours of sleep a day. And you're taking some moments. This is just important to go have a social moment or, or, or chat to friends or go out for a meal or whatever it may be to step away from the game because that's actually just as critical to be healthy in your mind. So, yeah, uh, people think it's 16, 17 hours a day. That used to be the norm seven, eight years ago, because if you just practice the most, you would win. Nowadays, we're past that, where just because you practice most doesn't mean you're the best player, and actually your uh, uh, health and, and, and your mental strength, your body strength, your team abilities, your communication abilities are just as important. And One thing I've not added in there is, not every day, but you also have hours here and there for team activities, some sort of bonding activities, some sort of feedback sessions, review sessions of these matches, so maybe do four hours of practice, you do one hour of sitting with a coach, you know, with the TV going through the game. So there is sort of other aspects to how you improve the team. But eight, nine hours a day of that work in some format for me is the standard. No, no that's great. Yeah, I want to keep moving here because other, this is really fast. I could keep going and, okay. and I don't want to take <laughs> all of our time here. What about the rest of the organization? Because um, we're, we've been talking about the players. But one of the great things about having the conversation with you, the opportunity is that you, you, you're, you're looking at the whole organization. So in an esports team, what are, what are the other play, who are the other characters that make up a successful esports team organization in general? Sure. So I don't think it's that different to traditional sports, to be honest. So when I think about our business, yeah, you have your performance team, 
You have your operations team who's just running the business as a whole, which I'm part of. Your marketing division, so they're doing everything from uh, content creation and managing the content to your merchandise, to your social media, you know, very much the brand. You have your partnerships team, people specifically going out there finding partnerships because, as I said, it is a strong, strong revenue maker. And maybe within that partnerships team, you'll have a couple of people trying to take different revenue approaches as well. So even though the partnerships team is more of a monetary team, let's say, if that makes sense. Your facilities team, if you have a facility as well, we have a facility out in Riyadh under Falcons and it's a Matamas facility. So that needs its job every day. And that's when you start to get into IT, security, you know, office management, etc. I'm trying to think if I've missed any, but it is, it is for me, no different to a very traditional functioning sports business, minus the stadium management, right? It's just that bit that's missing. But even then, as I said, we have a facility now, so it actually probably isn't even that different anyway. Um, so there's a lot of different methods uh, um, and different ways you're, you're managing the company. Every company is slightly different in, in where they want to lean and how heavily they want to lean and approach. Um, but it's no different to your standard business. No, I, I think that's, yeah, it's kind of the answer that I expected because it, 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 it is a business and, and, uh, and it should be, should be treated that way. Could you talk a little bit more about the marketing side of things? How does a team, um, create an audience for, for what it is that they do? Sure. Because one of the things I, I can, I can see, I can see in your background, you, you think of this long term. You're not like, how many people can we get to the, to the, to the game this week? It's how many people can we talk to over the season, over the lifetime? It's, it's how do you, how do you create an audience for your team? Like, I think that, I think it is a mistake to think short term in, in any sport, but esports especially, because it's so easy to get attracted by like small wins, right? And these fast wins. So it is really important to think long term. As I said, you have to really take a step back and go, right, what, what audience are we trying to achieve? So for, Falcons, to be honest, it's, it's an easier answer, which is we're trying to get a Middle Eastern audience. There are more conversations we had about how that expands into Europe, for example. But initially, we're looking for a core gaming Middle Eastern audience. It's a very simple one. It's not going to be as simple for sort of organization out there. If you're starting a team in France, for example, and there's 10 other teams, just say you're going to have a French audience, it's not going to be that simple. So identify what region you're going for, then what audience you're going for within that, yeah, I said gender breakdowns, age breakdowns, uh, uh, ethnic uh, or, uh, origin breakdowns, etc. Who within that fit with your team and why? Um, and then, as I said, then is your next step about to start to build your marketing division around that fact. So your easiest aspects obviously going to be social media. So how within social media can you activate your brand and attract these audiences? What kind of tweets and messages and things out there are going to attract the kind of audience you want? What brand messaging? you're going for you got number two which is content so what kind of content are you putting out there video form and graphical form to be entertaining for people and therefore get them interested in your business so to put esports performance aside this is more just like a pure entertainment perspective why would someone watch your content you obviously have the esports side then so you have your performances are you going for an extremely performance heavy business for winning is the aim of your game or are you going to try and match up with personalities within your team who are very good at being on camera for example and that kind of thing so so how is that going to attract your audience um and then you start to go into a few different things then you start to think about merchandise you can start thinking about events you can start to think about conventions you start thinking about all these more minutiae things that add into your overall brand 
and but ultimately still fit into that same brand messaging. So if you have, as I say, if you have identified the audience you want and your core brand messaging of how you're going to try that audience, are you going to be a cocky, arrogant kind of brand? Are you going to be a professional performance brand? Are you going to be a pure comedic entertainment brand? Like what kind of thing you're going for to combine with that audience acquisition, uh, that audience region? That should create the basis of your audience acquisition and, and all those things, much content, social media, and, and, and merch and blah, 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 should all fit in to that same ideology. And so is creating the, the audience the same thing as creating a community? I don't think so, because I think they're two different things. I think creating an audience is more of a, uh, basically, it's a follower versus a fan, in my opinion. So, so when you talk about having a large audience, that might be your followers. Now, these are people who are going to, Tune in to watch your matches. They might be talking about the matches with your friends at the weekend. They might buy a jersey, something like that. They might watch some of your content. They're very casual uh, 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 consumers of whatever it is that you are putting out there as, as, as your products, right? And that's a follower. And, and that will be represented primarily in your social media numbers and in your viewership numbers and those kind of things. A community, I think, is so much more. That is a, a fan. That is someone who this brand matters to me right like it's not a hobby it is almost a job to me now and that is someone who's going to actively communicate with other fans and where possible players and staff etc they want to be there very well they're going to come to your events they're going to consume your merchandise on a much greater scale than just buying a jersey but they are also going to demand so much more as a fan they're going to want again it depends on your brand but you know communication transparency uh, uh, some sort of connectiveness to the players, ability to represent at events, flags, banners, jerseys, etc. That for me is your community. So your community is so much smaller than your following group. Um, and I think it's easy to miss the two. And they, they are important to each other. Because I said, even though your community is smaller, you can monetize them much harder. And actually, most of the marketing job is trying to convert a follower into a fan as opposed to necessarily like a no, you know, a nobody into a follower, if that makes sense. If no someone from outside to follow, it's it's easy to attract followers with paid advertising and um, more, let's say, traditional payment techniques, right? Some sort of, you put money out there, you'll get followers. Whereas making a fan, well, telling a follower via paid advertising, you should be a fan of us, you should buy more of our merch and you should come join us and communicate with us. That doesn't work. That That is actually much more around your brand messaging and your content and the things you put out there to make them connect to you. So that's where you have to have some sort of deeper brand messaging to actually convert them. And that's what a community is for me. No, I think that's a really good distinction because you can't you can't buy a fan. You can buy a, you can buy a follower. You can't buy a fan. Yes, yes. How about events? What what What's a good event strategy? Uh, for a team what what events should you go to and and how do you select them so i think this is the newest revenue stream for a lot of organizations out there right now because they've just finished building their facilities and the facilities are built in mind of people having the ability to attend the most simple ones are, are unsurprisingly sort of do these these watch parties or, or, or these abilities to bring people together to watch a match of your team together and, and you know pay ticket food those kind of you know, merchandise on the side available, very standard sort of viewing experience. That's it. Watching your team at a stadium, this is kind of the same thing because an awful, awful lot of esports matches are online. They're not, you know, 
in person in, in a tournament so you can put it on yourself on the screen and have people come watch and that be the connection so that's a very simple one i think as i say with it being so new it's up to teams to then become more creative about what they want to do around events i've seen some organizations go down uh, almost educational routes so they've built academies that attract people to their facilities and do sort of regular events running their own tournaments for example in a game which they then you know could, could plan an idea of oh the winner gets a contract with us or something and, and that's got an attraction its own way i've seen some teams go down sort of the convention route so they look at things like um you know international women's day as a way to use gaming to try and promote uh, that diversity there with with the uh, genders uh, or they go down you know numerous other routes around conventions technology conventions and gaming conventions etc to attract different people to their sites um I'm trying to think of some other examples. I mean, those have been the classics, as I say, conventions, tournaments, slash academies, uh, and watch parties. As I said, I think it's going to be, again, on teams start to get more creative with relevant. So I think seeing music starts to come a little bit. How can music fit with gaming, and how can we use our locations for that in some manner? Um, also, how can you connect with your players and your influencers as well? Okay, sure, you could do a... Um, signing of some kind you know i'll come to our facility today and we'll sign your stuff but actually what more can we do there how can we make our facility more of a hub than a one-off of set event space like how can it just be a place that people just want to come along because there'll be something they can gain from it every day so creativity needs to come in it's a new thing but hopefully it gives you a bit of an idea of, of a few aspects that people are looking at yeah i'm, I'm always just amazed how here in the u.s anyway with the with football stadiums it's like, here's this huge facility that's used like 13 times a year. It's like, wow. I mean, I mean, they're, they're getting much more, more creative to, to, to have a better utilization. Uh, but even like Dodger stadium, it's like, you know, it's only used, you know, part of the year. It's like, an, an, you know, there's just an opportunity there that, um, I, I mean, you know, I'm not telling something, telling them something they don't know. It's funny because it's, it's, I think it's a new phenomenon for sport in general, because in the UK, the newer football stadiums, the one or two that have popped up, people have basically redeveloped their stadium, have now redeveloped it in mind of how could it be used for more than just soccer, right? And I, I use Tottenham Hotspur Stadium example. They they have a pitch under the pitch that can open up to bring up another pitch, and that allows them to do music concerts, but it's also allowed them, they have been one of the main hosts of American football matches, for example. The few matches have been in the UK, to I think it's four a year now, they host two of them because they have a pitch hidden on the pitch. It's a crazy idea, right? But again, it comes down to that is a really creative idea of how can we start to use event space much more than just what we are designed to do. And so, funny enough, esports and sports, I think, is doing this all at the same time. And it's quite a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit here about culture because because of um, your connection with, uh, with the Middle East in yes. your setting in the UK. So what's, what's going on with esports in the middle east these days it's pretty exciting isn't it absolutely i think um it's it's a real like culture phenomenon out there right so where we've seen the middle east have so much excitement and focus on sport traditional sport and we've seen middle eastern business owners and entrepreneurs you know, trying and purchasing sports items um we've seen the equivalent in esports as well where there is a lot of gamers in the middle east um it was funny my boss told me to be blunt one day he's like look it's really hot outside we don't want to go outside 
Um, there are a lot of entertainment aspects you can do in the West that you can't do in the Middle East. So what do we love? We love sports and esports. We love the game. So the, the gamers out there are so much more fanatical and, and stronger about supporting or following or playing, whatever it may be. So what you've seen is, is a couple of esports organizations pop up in the Middle East, like Falcons and a couple others, that starts to do really, really well. But they are not developed enough in, in their longevity and their age uh, uh, life to have created Middle Eastern players that could go out onto the world stage and represent in, in games. So what you have is all these people want to be gamers, but no one to look up to yet. No one to look at. There's a few exceptions, but no one in, in general to look up to and to follow and to say, I want to be that player when I'm older. And also you don't have yet the systems in the middle east to produce those players either we don't they don't have the academy systems or, or constructs to take a gamer and say right this is how we're going to make you super good again like we're doing the west because performance has pushed that so i think what you're going to see is over the next five to ten years is more and more professional middle eastern players come into the international level market be capable as players and that's only going to encourage and strengthen the fans, the following, and the organizations that are Middle Eastern based in terms of an audience and a culture across the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but right now, it's very, very slow. And any Saudi or, or Middle Eastern player that makes it onto the international stage, as I said, like I mentioned, Massad, our boss, um, he, he is just like, he is a celebrity beyond a celebrity out in Saudi Arabia. Whereas to be blunt, there are some damn good players in the West, but they're not meeting with government officials or meeting with like the you know music and, and and sports celebrities of that level. They're starting to get there, but they're close. Whereas someone like Mossad is just revered in the Middle East, and that's because he's one of the very very few to come through that system and and produce. And so that shows that if they do have players ready to come through, people want to follow them. So they've got some way to go, and that's partly why I'm trying to help. But they love gaming, and it's only going to show as the years go by. Do you find that there's professional players from, from Europe, from the U.S. that go to the Middle East? Not yet, no. So I think the leagues and the standard isn't yet there to match it um, such that it's an attraction for a player because I think financially there's capability, of course, in terms of we can offer a contract capable, but we don't. they don't have the leagues or the setups yet for it. Now, they're trying to produce that now. So we've seen a tournament called Gamers 8, it's called, which is produced in the Middle East, which is putting... I think basically a record amount of prize money on the line for a set amount of games for 40 odd million or something absolutely bonkers. Now that's not, that's an international tournament that's being held in the Middle East. So it's not like players are playing for a Middle East team. They're playing for their American team or their British team and, and coming over and just playing the tournament there. So I think that's much more almost like a, it's almost like a tourism. Like they're trying to show the capabilities of Middle East from a, a league's perspective. And over time, again, I do believe the Middle East and Leagues will catch up and get to a point where it is attractive. But right now, what you're seeing is if a Middle Eastern team is good, they come and play in the European League or the American League. So it's very much them to us. It will eventually flip. And it's the same in traditional sport as well. In soccer especially, we know like how much money the Middle East has tried to put into their soccer league. They've got Ronaldo there now, the player, you know, one of the biggest players out there. They're getting there bit by bit, starting to attract these players, which in turn raises the level of league, which in turn attracts more players. Like it's just a cycle, right? We've got that same thing that needs to happen in esports. Yeah, the World Cup had to be huge. 
in that it was in massive, that aspect. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. I've never seen so many messages in my communication system. As you can imagine, everyone just going crazy. Um, but those moments just show, like, let's be real, Saudi Arabia would never have even been at the World Cup years ago and had a chance of beating a team like Argentina. It just shows how that league and those players are slowly but surely getting there. And sure, it may have been at the time a one-off, but it become a normal. Same equivalent esports. We have these moments that put some big tournaments on in the Middle East, that put some prize money up, the show you know, the Western world, like what we're capable of doing. As a result, that, that advances the leagues, that gets more investment, that gets more attraction of better players, and it just grows and grows. And as said as well, if Saudi Arabian or Middle Eastern players are coming through now because they've started to build these academy systems and these performance systems, they start to come through, they start to improve the league from a, you know, from a home point of view, from a culture point of view. Again, that starts to attract players across. So, just a cycle that's being built it's going to take five plus years i think um but we're going to get to a point where i believe the middle eastern leagues will be equivalent to the european and american leagues yeah that's that's great i mean one of the best stories about the, uh, the uh, world cup was morocco it's like yes uh, exactly yeah you no know, for them Absolutely. to get get where they it's like it puts puts all kinds of things on the map can you talk a little bit about how culture impacts esports because the people that you're working with in 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 um in the Middle East, um, you, you know, come from a different culture and there's different restrictions and non-restrictions than compared to, to what we might be, uh, used to here. How does a team work? Or, and I'm not trying to get specific, you know, to, to your, dozen, but in general, how does, how does a team work with different cultures? I think I'll, I'll bring it I'll, I'll talk about like almost like an operational point of view versus say an audience acquisition point of view. From an operational point of view, it's actually not, like it's something I've had to lead right internally at Falcons, and it's not been difficult. I think in terms of the technologies are equivalent, the expectations are equivalent, the the uh, work culture is is very equivalent as well. Such that actually, I felt very synonymous working with uh, my team out in Saudi Arabia day to day. Like we communicate through the same communication systems I've used the previous organizations. Sure, I might have set them up and there's some education to do. Like I, I've built, I've put a project management system into our company that wasn't something that, that they were necessarily using, but I've done that at previous organizations. So from a work culture point of view, for me, synonymous and, and, and no issue and actually very, very similar, which is a really good sign, I think. Obviously from a, uh, like, marketing and audience to talk about esports team here talking from a marketing and audience acquisition point of view 50 esports obviously that's extremely unique because the audience in the middle east consumes esports in a very different way to to europe and to america and it's been a really it's actually been the most interesting part of my job taking on the middle east and falcons for the first time of going right they want to bring the brand to europe we right now for example have a full french team in one of our games why should anyone give a crap about Falcons, you know, as as French people, as, as a French following? And so it becomes really unique of going, right, what content can we create and what social media methodologies can we create that does match those cultures bit by bit? I don't want to share too much. I don't want to give away our secrets, but little by little, you find the aspects of the culture that can match. But also, you try and slowly but surely just convert your followers and your communities, as I said, to be more flexible as well as a culture to match up to someone else. So 
we found that over time, for example, to this French team is, is in a game called Counter-Strike, which is a game that is not particularly big in the Middle East. So we've started doing more Counter-Strike tournaments in the Middle East. We've seen publishers start to put their finals, you know, their, their, their finals of tournaments in the Middle East, start to attract audience. So let's start to sell the game out there and show what the game's capable of. More people start playing the game out there. Okay, now you've got a culture around the game. Still consuming it differently to the French, but you've now got at least an audience interest in the game. And now we go, right, how can we match, as I say, those content pieces across, right? Let's avoid certain topics here and there, but let's talk about comedy, right? Comedy is a really good way to match the audiences across. Let's talk about bringing these French players to the Middle East and do some education on Middle Eastern culture and how they could stream or they could do content that is more appropriate to those audiences, for example. How can we put translation of titles on a video, right? Let's put Arabic titles on a French video. You know, it's, it's something simple, simple like that. So you, you come up with these very small methods that match up the cultures or at least try and get them to cross with each other that then makes you a brand that is a bit more global. Realistically, it's very hard um, and it's not easy. I've seen plenty of organisations for example, split up their social media. So in Europe, for example, they have a Spanish-speaking social media. They have an English-speaking social media. I've seen some organizations split up social medias by the game. So they have a Counter-Strike social media, League of Legends social media, a Valorant social media. So different organizations are trying to view it different ways. We're not seeing the most success with kind of like a full conglomerate of following. So just going, right, we are uh, ex-European-based organization but we want fans in america and the middle east we're just going to use this one main social media challenger these one set of teams and this one youtube channel and, and we're just going to acquire from everywhere and, and you may get some followers but you won't get the fans as we mentioned so teams are having to diversify and split in different ways to try and do that conversion from follower to fan in the different markets now it seems like cultures impacts it's funny because culture impacts all of esports, because I mean, think of Asian culture and how, how different that is, you know, versus Middle East versus, um, you know, US and, and Europe and, and even, even parts of Europe that, that you're describing. It's, it works differently in different parts of, of Europe and so on. So, so culture and, but the one thing is that, um, seems to me everyone we talk to language is not a problem. It's still, it's, I mean, language, uh, is, is, is the language is sport is esport. It's like, it's, it's gaming. It's like we were talking to Mitchell Square and he was talking about how you know, players in the Philippines will watch players in Thailand, not understanding a word that they're saying, but they're, they're learning on how to, how they play Mortal Kombat as an example out there. So it's, it's what I'm hearing from you is that, that language is not necessarily an issue either. It's broken down. I mean, we're lucky enough that the language education, especially my English is becoming such a, a worldwide language, but when it comes to sport and esports, you know, that is a language of its own right that you don't need it for. Um, I, I, I don't speak French, for example, but I have been at the finals of a major world championship in League of Legends, and it was in Paris with French commentators in the in, in the stand. So the stadium is blasting French commentary, and I'm just going, well, I don't know what they're saying, but the match is good. Yeah, yeah, let's watch the match. And everyone's cheering at the same time and screaming at the same time. I think, as you said, that that, that language is broken down um, in a good way. We're at a point as well where technology has advanced so much that through, you know, auto subtitling and auto translation systems that you can have the ability to consume content and follow them 
players that you enjoy or the organizations you like regardless of location and that's again i think the difference between esports and sport esports is so global because we are inherently online and we attract people from all regions of the world yeah and that, that was one of the great things in that anubis documentary but uh, we, uh it, it was like the, the last quarter of the of the program was all in arabic but 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 the speakers were so animated they were so excited it's like that didn't need to understand what it was they were saying to get their uh, to get the, what they were feeling about it hey i i really appreciate your time here um talking about especially about um operations of e- of an esports team because i guess one of the things that we're going i hope we're getting across here is that it's really really important to pay attention to the operations side thing there's there's more to esports than players just like in yeah. We always say here in LA, there's there's more to movie making than actors. It's like it, it, something something similar, and and um, we could not cover everything here. But um, so, what's next for you? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think for me, I, I'm really focused right now on on how we can bring the Falcons brand from one region to another region, from the Middle East to Europe. I think it's a project that I have never attempted. Right, I've had the the been very grateful to say I've been on many you know top tier teams and many businesses that have grown from startups wherever they are never had that challenge so for me it's how can I help bring the Falcons brand to Europe and they're doing my continued work which is I want to make Falcons in Europe uh, and their players and their teams uh, you know a world championship winning teams in their respective games that's a standard I need to take everywhere because that's my job but regardless um, that is something that I want to do for Falcons so We'll see where it goes. Um, very exciting times just at the moment, though. But I'm I'm really like genuinely enjoying this challenge. It's something a bit different, a bit more unique with such great people who want to invest and push on on what we can do in Europe with this brand that is not inherently European. It it, it makes a complete difference if you if you um if you're working with the right team, isn't it? Hundred percent. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> it's just I've, I've, say, I've had the it's joy. A, can, sorry, guys. I, I have the joy of of being on. Some great teams in esports. I've had the joy of the opposite. <laughs> oh, yeah, joy is not the right word. Is it? But I've noticed that when you invest in staff and when you invest in, as you say, these operational things behind the scenes, not your players and your, your performance, but actually get the company running smoothly, get good communication systems, put money to your HR department, put money into your hiring, you'd be surprised how well a company can do. As this is, this is, this is one on one with any company, isn't it? But yeah, with esports, it's easily forgotten. So, um, I've seen both sides. I'm very grateful in Falcons, the good side of things, um, and it will show because the, their growth is astounding. And it just shows, it, it just comes down to people doing their work. Yes, yes. So where, where can people find you online and what you're doing? So the best way to follow me is Twitter and LinkedIn. So on Twitter is at Grant Rouse, R-O-U-S. Um, and on LinkedIn, Grant Russo, if you just search me, um, I do a lot of um, articles and activity on LinkedIn, actually. So if you're looking to be educated let's say on that side of esports or, or want to know more about esports operations we've done this kind of thing please go follow me on linkedin that's the best place my twitter is usually just me ranting about our performance so it's not it's the most educational side um so yeah linkedin best <laughs> just, just a little a little more human exactly the twitter the human side the linkedin is the right how can i actually grow esports side <laughs> yes yes you know I, no again i really appreciate you taking your time here so for season three of the Gamers Changes Lives podcast here, two new features. One is we're going to have exercise worksheets so you can go and, and learn more about what the topics are that we're talking about. 
So those are going to be available on the website, gamerschangelivespodcast.com. And the second thing is to come join our Facebook group because we are going, we have a Facebook page, but we, we want to have a Facebook group because the best place for people to learn, the best people for people to learn from is each other. Everyone here in our community knows more, knows more than I do about esports. So thanks again, Grant. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This is the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.